you turn with me in your bulletin to the passage on which the teaching is based this morning? It's printed there. It's John chapter 20. We'll read verses 24 to 31. John 20, 24 to 31. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And this is God's word. Now, this is a very famous passage, and what, but what helped me get an understanding of it that I never had before were two interpretive questions, two questions that as I was studying uh, other students' work on this, as I was listening and reading, I noticed two questions that were posed of this text that I'd never asked before, and when I posed them, they helped me a great deal. Uh, The first question is this. Uh, John is incredibly selective. You notice right there at the very end, verse 30, he said, you know what? I have far more sources I have far more memories of things that Jesus did than I have used. In fact, if you want to know how selective he was, uh, students of the book of John say that, uh, though there's maybe a doubt of a day, in general, if you read through the book of John and you're careful to notice the time, John only covers 21 days in the life of Jesus. 21 days, that's all. Maybe 22, there's a couple places where it's a little difficult to tell, but that's all. I mean, that's, that's, hard. that's not a biography of Jesus. I mean, not really. It's, he's incredibly selective. But on top of all that, not only did John only choose a very tiny number of incidents and encounters and events that he shares with us, but this is the climactic one in his whole book. In John 21, the story about, which we're going to look at next week, the story about Peter and, and, John and Jesus and the disciples, it's kind of a mopping up. It's kind of a loose end. It's the sort of thing at the very end of the story, at the very end of the movie, there's always a loose end. And you know, remember, John and Peter, uh, Jesus and Peter are kind of on the outs and they need to patch things up. It's a, it's a mopping up. This, almost all commentators, almost all students admit, this is the climax of the whole book. And what that means is that John the Apostle, sitting down, thinking of everything that he ever heard Jesus say, thinking of every encounter he ever had with anyone, thinking of every incident in the life that he knew of, or that any of his friends, any of his associates knew of, chose this one as the climax of the whole gospel. This is it. Why? (laughs) As soon as I asked that question... Maybe I say, that's an interesting question. Why? What's so special about this? Why was Thomas chosen to be the climax of the gospel?
Now, the second question that I'd never really asked was this. People noticed and asked the question, why does Jesus do a double bind on Thomas? Now, do you know what a double bind is? If you read communication books, you know what a double bind is. A double bind is when you say one thing uh, with your words, but your behavior says something else. And you must never do this uh, in marriage. For, so it goes like this. I'll give you an example. Uh, you say, you know, I'd like to go out tonight. Is it okay if I go out and leave you home? Is that, is that all right? Or would you rather I stayed home? And if your spouse says, no, no, that's all right. Go ahead. No, do you really want me to stay home? No, no, everything's fine. Just go ahead if you want to go. It's okay. I'm not going to ask you to stay home. Now, that's called a double bind because it gets you coming or going. I mean, you're stuck. You're gone. You know, you, you, it's, you've been cut off at the knees because if you stay home, the, your spouse will say, I didn't tell you to stay home. You know, you want to be miserable? It's up to you. And if you leave, the spouse can say, you could see how upset I was. And so, and either, so either way, uh, it's, uh, it's bad communication. It's not fair. It's not right. Double bind. Jesus, however, does a double bind on Thomas. Not something I ever saw before. Because he says one thing and behaves in a different way. Uh, uh, Contradictory to it. He says one thing and he behaves in another way. What he says, first of all, and he says it a couple of very clear ways here, is that you should not need to see me physically in order to believe he first of all says right out, he says, he says, you have seen and you believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and believed. What he's saying is there's no particular need in order to believe in me to have actually seen the physical risen body of Christ. You just don't need that. And not only that, when he first appears, notice he rebukes him. He says, stop doubting. He doesn't say that Thomas's condition is all right. He doesn't say, well, now, Thomas, I know you're doubting, but that's all right because I haven't shown up yet but here I am. He says, stop doubting, which means the condition Thomas was in, which was not listening to the other disciples who had told him in verse 25, he's alive. Thomas wouldn't believe. He says, I won't believe till I actually see him. And Jesus shows up rebuking Thomas for that, saying, this shouldn't be. You shouldn't be in this condition. This isn't right. You shouldn't need this. You shouldn't demand this. People don't need this. And then he gives it to him. So here on the one hand is Jesus insisting, even rebuking him for demanding a certain kind of evidence, and then on the other hand, giving him everything he just told him he shouldn't be asking for. That's a double bind. Unless you ask yourself, well, if Jesus is perfect, and he probably isn't double binding, in fact, if you just want to even go far enough and say, if John the the writer isn't a jerk, and he probably wouldn't show us Jesus double binding, in other words, once you assume that can't be, and say, well, then why does he seem to be acting like this way but behaving a different way? You get a couple of pretty interesting ideas. And here's what we get. Thomas has been chosen as the climax of the gospel, not because he's such a great doubter, but because he is a great apostle and a great believer. Not because he's a great doubter. I mean, whenever you ever see this, this taught, you always, the, the titles are always Thomas the Doubter, Doubting Thomas. That's not the reason he's the climax. It's because he's a great apostle and he's a great believer. Let me show you. First of all, the reason that Thomas needs to see the risen Christ physically is not because he needs it in order to be a believer. As a believer, Thomas does not need to see the risen Christ with his own eyes physically. But as an apostle, he does. He can be a believer without seeing Jesus physically risen from the dead, but he can't be an apostle. And that's the, that's the first point. The first point is that the, that the uh, meeting that Thomas missed was the week before. 
That's the one where the disciples say, we have seen the Lord. It says, Thomas was not with the disciples when Jesus came. But if you go back to that incident, you'll see what was so important. What happened there? They were commissioned as apostles. This wasn't just any kind of, um, of resurrection appearance. Not that the resurrection appearances were routine, but, but what happened was there was a commissioning. Jesus gives them the Holy Spirit And he also gives them the message. He gives them the authority to tell people how their sins are going to be forgiven. So he's commissioning them as an apostle, and Thomas missed it. And the reason that Jesus comes and says to to Thomas, you see, as a believer, to be a believer, he shouldn't have demanded this. But as an apostle, he has to have it. Why? Because apostles were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. If you go to the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 20, I think or so, uh, that's where the apostles elect an apostle because Judas, uh, of course, was gone. And they, elect, and they say, well, whoever we elect has to be a witness to the resurrection. Paul, who was an apostle, has to mention, in order to make sure people understand that he's an apostle, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8, somewhere around there, he says, uh, he mentions all the, the apostolic uh, witnesses of the resurrection, and he says, finally, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Now, Paul is pointing out this, I'm not an apostle unless I've physically seen the resurrected Lord. What's so important about this? Why would this be at the climax? Why would John be pushing this on us? Why would John be showing us this? This is the reason why John doesn't describe Thomas just as Thomas. He describes him as one of the 12. Well, that's obvious, unless this was a point. And here's the first point. John wants us to see that the apostles got the royal treatment, that the apostles, in ways that no one else did, Jesus met with them 40 days constantly after his resurrection. The apostles, when I say got the royal treatment, they got every possible kind of proof. They got all the rational proof, all the empirical proof, all the existential proof, no matter how you want to define it. They got everything. They were overwhelmed with it. And why? Because for one week, Thomas related to the other apostles the way you and I relate to them all. You see, in Ephesians 2.20, we're told the apostles are the foundation of the church, the foundation of our faith. It's the apostles who saw him, the apostles who dealt with him, the apostles who heard him. They got, they got this kind of treatment. And then they went out and they preached the gospel. And they preached the gospel. And when they all began to die off, the teachings of the apostles and the associates of the apostles and the teachings of that first generation were put into this book. Now, here's what John is trying to get across. In fact, there's another place where John says this in the beginning of his first epistle. He says, he's talking about himself as an apostle. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at with our hands, getting the picture, and which we have touched. This is the word of life, the one whom we proclaim. He appeared and we testify to what we have seen and heard. Here's what John is saying. He says, look at this incident. He says, look at the treatment we got. We apostles, now, how can you, 100 years later, 500 years later, 2,000 years later, 3,000 years later, I hope not, but how can you be sure that what you're reading in here is not distorted? How can you be sure it's true? How can you be sure it's valid? How can you be sure it's not a distortion? Or how can you be sure? Look at the treatment we got. That's what he's saying. Thomas is rebuked for not believing the apostles' testimony. How are we doing? How about you? How about me? Are we believing it? You see, 
Jesus, you know, think about this. Jesus shows up rebuking Thomas for what? Stop doubting. Stop doubting what? Stop doubting what the apostles have told you. <laughs> and so the first thing that John's trying to get across here it, by saying Thomas was an apostle, and look at the treatment we got. Trust us. Believe us. Don't be afraid. We're the foundation. But even more than that, you're not an apostle unless you're a witness to the resurrection. Why? And this is one of the ways in which the Bible, and this is one of the ways in which John is showing us the nature of the gospel. Thomas already knew plenty about the teaching of Jesus. He didn't need this interview if his job was to go out and tell people what Jesus said. Jesus had done the Sermon on the Mount. He talked about turning the other cheek. He talked about living lives of, of love and peace and justice in the world. And if the main message of the gospel, if the main message of the apostles was the teaching of Jesus, if that was the main thing, well, in that case, Thomas doesn't need this interview. The apostles didn't need it either. But the point of it is the apostles had to be witnesses to the historicity of the resurrection, which means what John is getting across, and it's almost like he's anticipating the modern mindset. He says what's really important is not what Jesus said, but what he did. Not his teaching and philosophy, but what actually happened in history. Now, the reason I bring this up, and the reason I even say that John seems to almost anticipate the modern mindset, I don't think that he really did, but, you know, with, by God's help, he did. The modern mindset, modern people desperately want to do the opposite. They desperately want to say this. They want to say, you know, this, this death of resur and resurrection, these miracles, this idea of the blood of Christ, the idea that we have to worship Christ, you know, I, I'm uncomfortable with that. I think that divides people. I also think that a lot of modern people can't believe in those kinds of, those kinds of things. I think these are legendary elements. I think these are miraculous accretions and legendary elements. But the important thing, see, almost everybody does this. The important thing is the teaching of Jesus, the teaching of his love, the, uh, the teaching of, of, of peace, the teaching of justice, how we're supposed to treat each other. That's the important thing. That's the heart of things. And the answer of John here is absolutely not. There's a difference between teaching and the gospel. The teaching is about how you should live, but the gospel is about what he has done. The teaching, a teaching, a philosophy is about you, but the gospel is about him. Teaching says if you love one another and if we obey God and serve him and live like Jesus, then, then we will know God. But the gospel says a cleft is open in the walls of the world and God has come in. And this changes everything. It is so absolutely different. In fact, I can almost prove to you. See, pardon me. John is trying to say to modern people, if you get rid of things like the resurrection, you don't just modernize Christianity, you disembowel it. I thought about that word. I just, I just didn't make that word up. I thought about it. I know it's gross. I know it makes you think. Maybe you haven't thought. Think. I know it's supposed to conjure up a picture. Go ahead. Because the heart of Christianity is taken out if you take out the idea that Jesus died and rose. And you say the teaching. Because teaching is about you. It, it changes it utterly. It says basically the news is try your best to live like Jesus. And the gospel, which says he died and he rose in your place says, don't try to do your best. You can't possibly do your best. Trust in him. They're two totally different religions. Now, I can almost, I can almost prove, I said that about a minute ago, I can almost prove something. 
There is a, if you go into your typical bookstore today, you're going to have lots and lots of books about Jesus. And the one thing they most desperately want to do is they want to get around what John is telling us here. The, uh, people today, especially the more educated people today, desperately want to believe that in the beginning, Jesus was just a teacher. And only later on did the legends come in. Only later on did the church turn him into some kind of risen God. In the beginning, all he was telling us was to do was to act with justice and to love one another. That's the beginning. That's the important thing. Almost all those books are saying that. They're, they're big and they're thick and they're 50 bucks and, and there's all sorts of, uh, of, of footnotes and they're incredible scholarship and everyone is criticizing the last one, saying he wasn't really a cynic sage, he, wasn't re- he was a revolutionary, he wasn't, they all seem to disagree, but underneath basically what they're doing is they're trying to say the essential early message of Jesus was the teaching, a moral approach, a way of life, not miracles, not death, resurrection, atonement, incarnation, virgin birth, that stuff all came in later. And John is saying, no, the apostle's job was to witness to those very things. And you know, how do I prove it? I'll prove it this way. Middle-class people, when they hear a sermon that says, if we can just love one another, if we can just reach out to each other, then, then the world will be at a better place. Now, middle-class people, comfortable people, they walk out saying that was a good sermon. But can you imagine the apostles doing what they did do? We know that the gospel, the early gospel, spread amongst the broken, spread amongst the oppressed, spread amongst the poor, spread amongst the slaves. And can you imagine the apostles sitting down and saying, I have some good news for you. Love one another. Turn the other cheek. If we just reach out to each other and we get rid of our prejudices, we can make the world a better place. And can you imagine broken people, oppressed people? Sure. Look at Manhattan people, you know, people who like to, like to taste, people who go to the museums, people who go to the concerts, people who go to church, people who go to lectures. They, you know, that really makes sense. That's really true. That's not who the people were who originally embraced the gospel. The people who embraced the gospel, if they had heard a talk like that, if they heard something like that, which is what all the books say was the original message of Christianity, you know what they would have done? Well, I'll tell you what they wouldn't have done. They wouldn't have said, love one another. Turn the other cheek. Yes, that changes my life. Finally, finally, I have got something to deal with the relentless despair of my life. Finally, I've got hope for the future. Finally, I've got a new identity. Finally, I have, uh, I have liberation. No, but if they come and say, he is risen, if they preach the resurrection right from the start, Right from the start, if they preach the resurrection, the resurrection changes everything. Philosophy doesn't change anything. The resurrection says that means that your past is changed because if he's resurrected, that means that the sacrifice for sin that Jesus Christ did on the cross was accepted. And if he's risen, not just as your past has changed, but your present has changed because you don't just have a, an example, a teacher that you mechanically try to comply with, but you have a risen presence. You've got someone who you can talk to and you can deal with who can come into your life and transform you. And not only that, if he has risen, not only has your past changed and your present has changed, but your future has changed. Because this is your future. You're going to live forever in a rehabbed body on a rehabbed earth with a rehabbed new heavens and new earth. This is the reason why the poor could get a hold of the resurrection. This is the reason why the poor said, if that's true, I have a new identity, I have a new dignity, I have a new hope, I have a new future. I do have liberation. I am a different person. Don't you see? I can virtually prove 
The people who write the books are middle class and upper middle class, and they say, wouldn't it be moving to hear a talk like this? But not the original hearers. They wouldn't have been moved at all. One of the great, great ironies of the modern day is that very often the people who most care about the poor, so many of our most wonderful modern liberal elites are very concerned about the poor and they always say, however, the kind of religion we really need is a religion where you get rid of the divisive doctrine and the miraculous elements and just have a religion in which we talk about love and peace for everybody. You know what's so interesting? The poor themselves have always rejected that kind of religion. It makes no sense to them. It doesn't do a thing for them. And so many of our educated elites look at the poor and they see what the only kind of religion the poor have ever gotten a hold of is this kind of religion. Go out and see what kind of storefront religion you've got. They're not in there saying, if we just love each other, the world will be a better place. They're not saying that. They're saying he's risen. And that means your past, your present, and your future are all changed. It's a, it's a, it's a baldly supernatural religion. And unfortunately, a lot of our educated friends say, yes, I know they do have that kind of old-time supernatural religion, that belief in Jesus died, risen, coming again. I know The poor dears, they don't know any better. They're not educated. Yes, they do know better. Yes, they do know better. The apostles were witnesses to the resurrection. They were not purveyors of teaching. They didn't bring Jesus' teaching. What he said, they brought what he did. Teaching is about you. What he did is about him. And that's the reason why it changed the world. Thomas didn't need an interview unless he was to be a witness to the deeds of Jesus. Now, the second thing, and the only other thing we learn here, is Thomas was not just chosen to be an apostle, because one of the reasons we said that John made this the climax is to show you you can trust the witness of this book, you can trust the witness, and to show you the nature of the gospel that it's a transforming power and it's a message of something that was done in history and you're not a Christian until you believe that. You're not a Christian if you're just trying to emulate the, the moral example of Jesus because that's not what the disciples went out with, the identity of the gospel. But secondly, Thomas was an incredible believer. On the one hand, Jesus comes to him and gives him the, the picture. He shows him his hands and his side in order to make him an apostle. But on the other hand, Thomas is being rebuked and he responds to that rebuke with the greatest profession of faith anywhere in the Bible. Something that is unfair that in, when you think of Thomas, what do you think of right away? When you think of the, uh, uh, the Apostle Thomas, you right away think, yes, doubting Thomas. Isn't this unfair? There is no place anywhere in the Bible where any human being has a higher identification, a higher way of describing who Jesus Christ is. In fact, if you read the entire Gospel of John, you'll see that that's what John's been trying to get across. Jesus, all the way through the book, has been trying desperately to tell people who he is. I mean, in John chapter 8, he says he's without sin. John chapter 8, 45 and 46. In John chapter 8, verse 19, he says, if you know me, you know the Father. In John chapter 12, he says, if you see me, you see the Father. In John chapter 8, he says, before Abraham was, I am. He doesn't say before Abraham was, I was. He takes the divine name, the divine name. You know, when God spoke to Moses in the bush, the burning bush, he declared his name, Yahweh, which is I am that I am. I am that I am means uncreated, uncaused, self-existent being, beginningless, the source of all other existence and being, you see. And Jesus takes the divine name on him. 
So all the way through, he is alienating people. He's saying these incredible things. They want to stone him. They want to throw him out. In John chapter 6, he says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And what does it say? He says, most of the disciples said, forget this, and walked away. And all the way through, the disciples are wrestling and struggling. What is going on? Because this is, this is the theme of the Gospels. Do you remember on Palm Sunday we talked about this? Jesus Christ rode in to Jerusalem being declared king. He orchestrated it. He pushed his enemy's hands. The enemies now either had to kill him or receive him as the Messiah. And we said that that is the theme of the Gospels. And that's, the theme, that's what Jesus is always trying to do in the Gospels. He's saying, crown me or kill me. Nothing in between. See me as the all-powerful creator God or else throw me out as someone who makes Hitler look sane and modest but I'm nothing in the middle. Look at my claims. That means I can't be a nice guy. I can't be a wonderful teacher. I can't be a good example. I'm saying I'm a God. So you either have to receive me as the ultimate power in your life and the supreme authority in your life, or else you have to throw me totally out. And finally, all the way through the gospel, he's pushing, he's pushing, he's pushing, and finally Thomas comes right out and says it. What does he say? My Lord and my God. And that's what it means to be a Christian. And you're not a Christian until you say it. On the one hand, it's a propositional statement. Jesus is Lord of the universe and God himself. In other words, there's content to the faith. Thomas sees a doctrine and believes it. See, it's not vague. It's not just a feeling. He believes it. It's a proposition. On the other hand, on the other hand, it's personal. He doesn't just say Lord and God. He says, my Lord and my God. And so he rests his life on it. And there you have a perfect example. There is no greater profession of faith. There's no greater expression of belief, and this is it. This is what God, John has been trying to get us to. This is, in fact, this is the climax of all four Gospels. Until you see him as that, not just a nice person, not even just a savior who kind of helps you over the hard times in your life, not someone who you just go to church for high holy days or you pray to when you're in trouble, this has got to be the one who's the center of your life, the one you bow down to, and Thomas speaks for us all. Now, here's the question. How do you get to that? How do you get there? And what I love about this, if you look kind of carefully, I would say that, that uh, the, this incident with Thomas gives us several extremely practical ways for us to become as the big believer that Thomas is. See, some of you, I'm sure, are wondering whether you're a Christian. Maybe some of you know you're not a Christian and, or you're not sure if you are. And you're not sure you've ever come to faith. Well, there's a lot of instruction here. But for the rest of us, you know why some of you are worried about money right now? You're Christians, but you're worried to death about money. Or some of you are very bitter right now against somebody, really mad. Or else some of you tossed and turned all week because you felt like you'd been left out or snubbed or kind of elbowed out or ignored by somebody. And you know what the answer is. Do you know what the answer is? The reason you're worried, the reason that you feel so discouraged, the reason you're so angry is you don't really believe that Jesus is who he said he is. Now, how are we going to come to faith in Christ or how are we going to strengthen our faith in Christ the same way Thomas found? Look, look at, look at the little factors. I'm going to give you five, very fast. Five practical ways to find faith or encourage your faith. Number one, listen to the apostles. Verse 25, they were telling him. By the way, you know what verse 25 says? It says they told him. Doesn't it say? It says they told him. It's a present progressive a present progressive verb. It says they kept on telling him. 
And Jesus shows up and rebukes Thomas for not listening to them. If you want to find Jesus, if you want him to be real to you, whether you're Christian or you're not a Christian or you don't know what you are, you've actually got to, it's nice to come and listen to a sermon. I'm glad you're here. I hope you come back. Uh, It's good to talk to other Christians that have had experiences. That really builds your faith. It's good to read Christian books. It's good to listen to arguments. It's good to go to classes. But the number one most important thing to do is to go and actually read the accounts of the apostles and watch Jesus in the Gospels talking to people, touching people, dealing with people, helping people. You've got to see him that way. And if you haven't been doing that lately, no wonder he's just become a kind of, uh, a kind of figure, an abstraction. The first thing you've got to do is you've got to listen to the apostles. That's definitely one of the reasons why John has put this here. Listen, read that. They will stand on their own. No matter what your intellectual doubts about Christianity, if you read those things, Jesus will become so real to you. Number one. Number two, see how patient he's been with you. See, verse 27 seems to really blow right through all. Verse 27, Jesus gets there, and right after that we see that Thomas, all of his fears are blown away. What does Jesus say? He says, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. What I love about that. You know, one of the reasons why Thomas, I think, was just so amazed How did Jesus know Thomas was saying that? I mean, did he have a couple of resurrection appearances on Wednesday and the disciples told him? Say, hey, did you know what Thomas said about you? Oh, really? No. Thomas realizes that Jesus has been listening. Thomas realizes that Jesus has been there all along. He's seen all of his doubts. He's seen all of his stupid doubts, all of his fears. He's been right there. And yet here he is. You know that... I cannot help but think of in this situation of Thomas seeing, realizing that Jesus has been listening to him all along. I can't, I can't help but remember the, uh, that play, time in the, in the Fisher King, that movie, where uh, Robin Williams is a homeless man who's been watching this klutzy girl for, for, for weeks. And she's sort of in love with her. He sort of watches her. He sees that she's a wallflower. He sees that she's clumsy. He sees that she has absolutely no friends. Remember that? And Jeff Bridges, his friend, helps, helps uh, Robin Williams kind of clean himself up. He's a homeless man so he can get, and fixes up so he gets a date with her. And they go out, and it's, you know, because it's funny. It's a comedy at that point. And there's a lot of mishaps. And when he brings her back to her, her, her apartment, she says, well, I had a good time, but I'm sure you're not going to want to go out with me again. And even if you want to go out with me again, I don't want you to go out with me again because if you get to know me, you won't like me. And Robin Williams says, you don't understand. <laughs> I've been watching you. I've been listening to you. I know that you don't have friends. I know that you're kind of physically klutzy. I know that you're awkward. I know that I know all these things. You know what? I do love you. I do want you. I will never leave you. And she looks at him and she says, are you real? And she's transformed. And you know what? If Robin Williams will do that for you, what will Jesus do? I mean, if a human being who can't possibly mean I know everything about you, he he just meant, I've really been there. I have seen your, your flaws and I still love you. He didn't know all of the flaws. And besides that, a human being who says, and I'll never leave you, can't be, we can't be sure of that. But here's Jesus who shows up and you know what? He knows all the stupid things you've ever said. He's heard them. He knows all the stupid things you've, he knows all your broken promises 
to yourself and to God. And he knows about your broken promises. He knows all your flaws. He shows up and says, I've seen you to the bottom and I love you and I will never leave you. And you've got to see that he's been with you all along and he's been patiently and intelligently loving you in spite of it. That's the second thing that melts Thomas's heart. So if the first thing is read the apostles, second thing is see his patience for you. The third thing, look at his wounds. The thing that really blew away Thomas, Jesus says, look at my wounds. Now, I'll tell you why this is the only way that your ever, life is ever going to be transformed. If Jesus had just shown up as God and said, believe in me and obey, i tell you what will happen. Uh, if I was, when I was a kid, and I was, sometimes my room would get so messed up that I would finally say, I can't stand it, I'm going to go clean up my room. And on my way to the room, my mother would say, have you seen your room? When are you going to clean that room up? Get in there and clean it up right now. And I would do a U-turn just like that. And I would say, when I'm ready. You know, and I would go away saying, well, I was going to do it for myself, but I can't do it for myself. I'm not going to do it for her. And, you know, in other words, of course the room is a mess, but I was on my way. Have you, my, your mother appears and says, clean up your room, and you just do a U-turn because that's the way the human heart is. And if you're, when your mother appears and says, clean up your room, if you won't do that, then how much less if God appears and says, clean up your life? Listen, common sense tells us that God was not such a fool as to simply send us one more good teacher. We have never listened to what the teachers have said. And somebody says, well, he was, but Jesus was the best teacher. Huh. You're going to tell me that if the kids can't do the, ba- the, the elementary uh, lessons and homework assignments, they're going to do the advanced ones? You think God is such a fool to send not just another great moral teacher, but a better one? Ah, but God himself came. He appeared and he did miracles and he did great deeds. And he says, here I am, now obey me. That wouldn't be enough either. I know it wouldn't be enough either. Do you know your own heart? You would do a Yui. You would just turn right around. There's only one sight that will actually break through the unbelievable ambivalence we have with God. We want him and we hate him. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says on the one hand, we want him so desperately. We're after, we're after Jesus in all of our romances. We're after him, really. In all of our career, we're after him, really. When listening to music, I think we're after him, really. We're really after him. We really want him, and yet our hearts say, I will not give up my independence. That would kill me. That would destroy me. There's this deep ambivalence, and therefore, if God only sends a man, it won't work. And if God only sends a God, if he only comes just as God, he shows, he kind of comes on down and says, here am I, that wouldn't work. It's a wounded God and only a wounded God. The sight of divinity at your service. A gourd God. A God run through. That is the only, that, that just blasted through all of Thomas's fears and it's the only thing that will blast through your fears. And the reason you're worried or the reason you're bitter, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian today, is because you don't see those wounds. You, you don't really believe he's a God who did that for you. And what you need, and that's the reason we're going to the Lord's table right now, is by his Holy Spirit to have that so real to you that you just give up your fears. You say, I can surrender to this one. I can surrender to this one. Crown him with many crowns. Behold his hand and side. Rich wounds yet visible above and beauty glorified. See, that's what Thomas did. All hail, Redeemer, hail, for thou hast died for me. Let's see. 
I'll praise you as my matchless king throughout eternity. It's not until you see that. That's the reason why that one guy said, I forget this guy's name, the poet that said, other gods did ride, but you, Lord, stumbled to a throne. To our wounds, only thy wounds can speak, and no god has wounds but thy alone. There is no god, no other religion that would dare to say there's a god with wounds. And unless you have God with wounds, not just a teacher with wounds, not just a God without wounds, not just a God, not just a man, but a God-man. Unless you get that doctrine together, it will never blast through. I'm not just talking about doctrinally, I'm talking about personally, psychologically, spiritually. It's the only thing that breaks through. Do you see it? Lastly, drop your conditions. You notice something? Thomas did not touch. Almost all the commentators agree that there's no, that almost all the commentators agree that we're, the way we're supposed to read the narrative is that Jesus shows up and says, behold my hands inside, feel me, touch me, and Thomas doesn't do it. He just says, my Lord and my God. He doesn't say, okay, my Lord and my God. He says, my Lord and my God. You know why? Because he realized that as a believer, he had demanded something. He had demanded a condition. And almost everybody at first comes to Christ that way. So I'll come to you, Lord, if you get me through grad school. I'll come to you, Lord, if I can marry him or her. I'll come to you, Lord, if my life goes well, if my career goes well. I'll, I will come to you if. Now listen, if you ever have a condition, do you realize what you've done? If you ever say, I will obey you if X, X is your real Savior. X is your real Lord and God. X is the thing that you're really after. And I can tell you one thing, it will never die for you. As a matter of fact, it will demand that you die for it. And you might be sitting in church, but you're not a Christian because until you drop your conditions, until you say, my Lord, you're my Lord and my God, unconditionally, you number one, no ifs, I obey you, not if, because of what you've done for me, then, then you're a Christian. You ready? Let's go to him now and pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us to crown him with many crowns the way Thomas did when he beheld the hand inside. And we pray that you would help us to do the same thing. Uh, by your Holy Spirit, we need to behold his hand inside. We need to see a wounded God. That's what we need. We thank you that you didn't just send us a teacher, and we even thank you that you didn't just send us a God. You didn't just come yourself in some kind of incredible manifestation of glory and beauty, but rather you came as a human God, God in the flesh, a wounded God. And we realize today, we realize today, those of us who have never seen this before, if we can embrace you as this, we can receive the new birth. And the rest of us know that if we can embrace you as this, we can face any challenge we're facing right now. So help us to do that by your spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.